Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions, to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Oren Klopper is CEO of NetShirt, a $40 million MSP firm, which he grew to 100 people and $40 million in revenue through acquisitions and organic growth. Globally awarded Dreams Program is part of the NetShirt aspirational culture. He's a Microsoft partner and orchestrated three acquisitions. He went to nine schools as a kid, only got expelled from three. So six out of nine is not a bad result. I love that. He enjoys swimming, traveling, and wine, which now a little pre-conversation, Orrin and I was saying that although this is a deals podcast and we'll stick to deals, we can speak an hour on wine, mainly red wine, but we won't go. <laughs> so it's great to have you in the podcast. Welcome. Corey, thanks so much. So listen, before we get into your company and what you do and your bio and all these deals that you've done, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because my guess is the founder and CEO of an MSP company that has done significant acquisitions was probably not it back then, but you tell me. Yeah, I definitely went through a few different iterations of what I wanted to be. The first was a game ranger. I wanted to be a game ranger. So growing up in South Africa, you go to the bush or on safari and you have these guys that can track and they can just, I mean, that, that always inspired me. And then from there, I went to wanting to be a lawyer. That didn't last long though. And then as I was finishing my school and entering university, I thought, let me go and do an aptitude test to see what should I consider doing? Because I was thinking about either doing like an engineering degree or architecture. And it came back that I kind of should consider taking an entrepreneurial type journey. And that's not why I took an entrepreneurial journey and I ended up doing a BCom, but a game ranger, a lawyer, an engineer, an architect, and then I ended up being an entrepreneur. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And one other question looking back, what was your first deal of any type that you can remember? It could be something small when you were a kid. It could be something early in your career. Whatever comes to mind, that was a deal. I actually looked for these doctors because I wanted to thank them. And I could actually only track one of them down that actually moved to New Zealand. There were these four vascular surgeons. And two of them operated out of one hospital and the other two operated out of another hospital. And we were doing some ad hoc IT type services for them. And they said to us, can you connect the two hospitals via wide area network? And this was 1990, so it was probably 97, 98. Okay, so the technology that was available then was very different to what's available today. And I remember sitting with them actually in the hospital. It was actually at Sunning Hospital and saying, absolutely no problem. We can definitely do it. And I had absolutely no clue how we were going to do it. 
And we ended up approaching this very bright guy who did neural networking at our university engineering BSc course. We ended up using a Linux solution connecting the two hospitals. And at that time, the pervasiveness of real dedicated connectivity was not, was not ubiquitous. Let's put it that way. And ISDN was the technology at that time. So basically the way ISDN worked, it was a digital telephone line in a way, and it would connect instantly. And it was a way that these two offices in these respective hospitals could be connected. And at that time in South Africa, you paid for a minute of a telephone call, even if you were connected only for one second. Right? <laughs> so what was happening was the server was pinging the phone line and the ISDN line was connecting between 20 to 30 times in a minute oh, no. and dropping the connection. So they were being billed between 20 to 30 minutes worth of connection in a minute. So they ended up with the most exorbitant phone connectivity bill that you could ever imagine. So long story short, we managed to negotiate out of that, but the significance then, like there's this long list, Corey, and I'm sure you've got it too, of people that have taken a chance on you, yes. who've opened a door for you or given you a chance. That doctor, one of them was Dr. Wright. So anyway, we got that because it wasn't very big. His daughter was at a school and we won that school's work. And that deal was the biggest deal we've had. We'd won exponentially. And that that had all sorts of ripple effects. So that deal always stands out. And I'm so grateful to them. Love it, love it, love it. So in the bio, you said something that is a fundamental premise of this podcast, which is that you said you've grown to 40 million and 100 plus people through organic, well, it's actually said through acquisitions and organic growth, right? And one of my premises of this podcast, and the reason I started it was that I know so many people, I mean, certainly in your field, right? In the MSP field, managed services, tech, uh, computer servicing, all that stuff. You know, there are so many small players out there and they're constantly trying to grow organically and get more customers and clients and, and they should, right? I always say that unless you're one of the tiny fraction of a percent of business that's that started solely for the purposes of aggregation and acquisitions, if you're operating business, you need to, how to get, know how to get a customer and a client and another one and another one, right? Organically through sales and marketing, networking, or whatever you want to do, advertising. Yeah. But so many companies in many industries, and certainly in your industry, that's the only way they do it. And there are many, many who are struggling to grow. And certainly as technology has shifted and changes and whatever, it's been a tough industry for some. The first thing I want to ask you is, before we even get into any of the deals you've done or whatever, talk to me about one of the things I always talk about on this podcast is mindset, right? There's a different mindset between an entrepreneur and an employee. Again, no judgment, not one's better than another, know thyself, right? But I also assert there's a different mindset to be a deal maker. There are plenty of entrepreneurs who are not deal makers, right? And they might build very good business organically. What was it about the mindset where, whether it was that first deal you decided to do, what had you decide to grow also through acquisition? And what was your thinking on that that might be different from others in your space? I think when I look back to the smaller initial acquisitions we did, they were, they were reactive and opportunistic. Okay. It, was, yep. it was never, until 2017, 2018, it was opportunistic. We kind of knew someone in the partner community and they were immigrating or they were wanting to get out of it. And so it was never, this is a key strategy we're focused on it. We're going to resource it. We're going to invest in it. And we had a reasonable amount of success with those opportunistic acquisitions that we were able to do. And then when we entered the US market, 
we bought a business in, they were based in Brooklyn, but most of the customers were in Manhattan. And that's when I moved to New York was in 2016. And you could say it was opportunistic in a way that we were exploring the market. We closed a customer in 2015. We were servicing totally remotely from South Africa. And we made every mistake, Corey, you could make except go out of business. <laughs> we spent more on legal fees in that deal than I think we'd spent in the whole business in the last five years combined. <laughs> And I'm glad we did because it, like we learned a lot from it. And then that was 2016. And I think we realized that our market is heterogeneous. It's fragmented. It's maturing. And it is ripe for consolidation. And then what happened was a lot of the private equity firms started to enter the market around about 2018, 2019. And now we're probably like anywhere between 80 to 100 private equity firms that are making a play in the consolidation of the MSP space. And then what we did was, Corey, we, we said, we're going to invest in this. So we retained a buy-side advisory firm to find us deals. We allocated my time and some of the other teams, team members' time to it. And I remember this other entrepreneur that mentored me in the earlier years of our business. And I asked him, how do you approach strategic planning? Because we've always got this long list of things that we want to do. And we said, you know what, John's good at this. Let's give him that as well. And we, I sat with him once and he said to me, there's two questions you need to ask yourself when you choose, you want to invest in a strategy. Is it going to be someone's day job? That's what they do all day, every day. And number two, are you going to fund it and invest in it? And I think when we made that decision, someone's day job and we're going to fund it and invest it in it that's when things started to started to tip yeah yeah those are such great points i mean i can't tell you how many clients i have in various industries right we do a lot in tech we do a lot in financial services and it's very common for companies to say yeah i'd really like to grow or even i'd like to grow through deals but there's a difference between that desire right and putting a strategic plan in place and dedicating time resources people and money to it as a priority then, and that's what frankly, a lot of them don't do, but you chose to do that. Yeah. And I think the one thing that we've done recently is we've made an additional hire last year and we hired a VP of corporate development. Mm -hmm. He came from the private equity investment banking world. And like I look now, so we've closed four deals over the last three years. We have two in LOI right now. And we probably have another four that are warm and could move into LOI in the next, let's call it three to four months. And the way this guy's experience and this leader, his name's Mark in our team, he cleans up, he analyzes, he's consolidating. And that's just a further extension of actually hiring someone who's from the industry, knows and understands M&A, knows and understands the way a deal should be structured. So he's actually been wind in our sales, man. What an absolute pleasure. Who are your targets in terms of sort of size or demographic or psychographic? Obviously, some people are doing deals with, with folks that want to retire and get out of the business. Some people are doing deals with people who just want to come and stay and continue to grow. Some of those, some of those deals on who you target. Yeah, sure. So one of our key things is that we want leaders, Corey. And if we're going to acquire a business, we really want to keep the key leaders. So I think the exception to that could be if we're in a region, we've got a very strong office and we maybe know the business and for a long time and that key leader wants to move on. That's something that we might consider, but our core sort of acquisition profile is the entrepreneur wants another chapter in their journey. Yeah. They want to have a growth mindset 
and they're not looking to exit. So that's probably one of the key priorities. The second one is from an EBITDA perspective, we're looking at MSPs anywhere between 500,000 to maybe sort of two to $3 million worth of EBITDA. That's kind of the range of EBITDA that we're looking at. We're looking for MSPs that have at least 60% recurring revenue in their business. And then we're looking for MSPs that have a strong people orientation. So their people in their culture is really, really important because that's one of the ways in which we've able to scale and grow. We know if we can find and keep great people, then the rest follows. So that's, we kind of try and figure that out early on to be able to see, is it a people-oriented culture? Because you have some successful businesses that are not as people-oriented and they kind of almost believe that, look, work life and personal life are totally separate, whereas we're more kind of, well, we think it's inextricably linked. And then Microsoft, we're predominantly a Microsoft business. So we have a lot of Microsoft skills and the customer base we service is predominantly using Microsoft technology. So those are kind of the key criteria. I mean, our strongest presence is in the Northeast. We close the deal in Maine at the end of May. And then some of the opportunities we have in LOI are, are actually one is in New Mexico and the other is in Washington. So we're looking across the US. Our BHAG, our big hairy audacious goal is to build the best, one of the best MSP platforms in the US. Love that. Love that. So you alluded to a little bit before when you said entrepreneurs are looking to go to the next level, but I want to drill into this a little bit more because we talked about the fact that, first of all, you have to come to this conclusion that you also want to grow through deals. Second of all, you've got to put dedicated time, resources, money. But then the next thing is, especially as additional buyers have come to the space, PE money has come to the space, that kind of stuff. The good opportunity is sometimes there's competition for them. And so one of the things I always talk to my clients about is when they say, hey, I'd really like to acquire. And even if there were negative resources, I would say to them, well, what's your value proposition, right? To these folks, like you have a value proposition out to your, to your customers. You yeah. also have to have a value proposition that is attractive to these entrepreneurial firms for them to join you. And again, you spoke about it generally mentioned next level, but I'd love you to drill into that in terms of what's the value prop? Why, if I'm running a reasonably successful MSP, never, yeah. but I want to hook up with you guys. Yeah, for sure. So I think in any MSP that is considering this, there are a few key things in their mind. And I suppose any other MSP on the strategy, they're thinking about these things as well. So in no particular order. So I'll kind of talk within the business and then I'll talk externally. So the first thing is they want to find a home for their people. Okay. And a lot of times these MSPs have had team members that have traveled this journey with them 5, 10, 15, 20 years. They want to make sure they sell their business, that their people are going to be looked after. So that's the one thing from an internal perspective. Secondly, they want to find a home for their customers and they want to be certain that the acquirer or the company that they're going to be joining will be able to look after those customers. So a certain level of sophistication of operations and quality of service. And then the third thing is economic value. They want to know that they're going to realize fair to great economic value. So when I look at the aspirations of our culture, where it's supporting the dreams of the doers, when we came up with that, Corey, it actually came out of an EO program that I did at uh, MIT, that EMP program. It was called Birthing of Giants at the time. And then we kind of carried on off there. We did something at Stanford, and then Simon Sinek came and did a session with us as well. And that's kind of where our supporting the dreams of the doers came out. And when we came up with that, the thinking was, 
primarily and firstly for our people, we want to have a culture where people feel they can do truly great work, where they can be balanced in their lives. And then secondly, we felt the next piece of that is we want to have an impact on our customers' lives. We want to have an impact on their strategies, objectives, goals, and dreams. Yeah. So this purpose just fit perfectly. But what has happened is we lean, and that's supporting the dreams of do as we came up in 20, 2010. And now our purpose of supporting the dreams of the doers is resonating with the MSPs we are wanting to join us on the journey because it's not a gimmick. Yeah. We've been doing dream books for 15 years. So it's not like something we're just using as a clever idea. So I think the aspirations of our culture, and always use the word aspiration because it's not perfect. We have times where we're struggling on certain elements of our culture, but overall, the aspirations of our culture, I think, are resonating with these entrepreneurs that are considering a next chapter, not only for their own life, but for their people. We have a sophistication of operations. I think they can see that their customer base is going to be cared for. And then I think one of the key parts of our value proposition from an economic perspective is that paying mark, we're doing market-related valuations, but what we're doing that I believe is differentiated from some of the other acquirers and consolidators in the market is that we're totally privately held, okay? So those that, that are able to join us in this chapter, it's pre our first liquidity event. So I think just the pure economics of that, one would be able to understand that there's a fair chance that on a 30% equity role, they're probably going to get paid much more than the cash portion they got and possibly the entire valuation. So that's really where, I think there's also this perception when I talked to, and I was just, I was actually with an amazing entrepreneur earlier, she's, we actually went for a walk and then we came back and then actually we were in the parking lot and he's, he was going to come in and we were going to, we were going to carry on talking. And I looked at my watch and it was like 15 minutes before we were due to start chatting. So <laughs> the time got away with me. I'm glad, I'm glad I had a look. But there is a perception in some of these entrepreneurs that the moment this happens and they do carry on, they're just going to be grinding and they're not going to have balance anymore. They're not going to be able to take holidays when they want to. And like we live, eat, breathe this idea of balance in our leadership team. In our Exco team, once a month, we dashboard. The question is, how balanced do you feel overall? Okay. And the next question is, are you coping? Red, green, yellow. We dashboard the entire team. We do that once a month because we know if everybody's red, there are problems coming. There's problems coming, balls are going to be dropped, and we're not going to be able to do what we need to do. So that's the other thing that we, look, I mean, end of the day, we're we're not a lifestyle business. So if someone's only working two hours a day, (laughs) that's that's going to change. But I mean, if you're someone who's ready to put your head down and work anywhere, uh, it's actually relevant to the hours, but it's more like a six to eight hour day. And sometimes it's a longer day. Sometimes it's a shorter day and you want balance. That is what we believe we can deliver on. Love it. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreykupfer.com assessment. That's coreykupfer.com assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. So you mentioned something earlier, which gets me into the the conversation a little bit of deal structure. And obviously we're not asking about any specific deal that's confidential, but but high level. 
Yeah, you mentioned a 30% equity rollover and that potentially being yeah. more valuable than the cash. So that would lead me to believe that you're generally doing 70, 30, 70% cash, 30% equity deals on the value of the firm. So tell us a little bit about how you, in general, have thought yeah. about structuring these things. Yeah, for sure. So I'd kind of just, without even doing bands, just scenario out a specific one would be 60% cash up front, yeah. 10% earn out, 30% equity roll. Yeah, got it. And listen, we got such a variety of listeners and the way this podcast has grown and we have so, so much way beyond the number of listeners I ever thought we'd get. And some of them are very sophisticated and some of them are newer to deals. So uh, I'll just jump in and explain a little bit. So in many of these deals, what I'm saying is that upfront closing 10% earn out, which means that there's back end money that's triggered usually to certain targets, growth targets or kegos you have to hit. And then 30% of the value is in some equity class. And I don't know if yeah. I want to talk about capital structure at all, but some equity class of his company, which when there's a monetization event down the line, obviously those people who have taken that 30% equity will benefit from, right? Yeah, that's it. That's it, 100%. Even for me, as far as my intention and why I feel so comfortable in putting this value proposition forward to other MSPs and entrepreneurs is because I'm going to do the exact same thing. I'm going to do the, the exact formula is what I'm going to do. Right. I'm going to, and when it comes, the time comes for us to have a liquidity event. And we, I mean, I mean I'm meeting with 22 private equity firms, which is just the initial phase of of us exploring at a conference in Boston, what that looks like, I'm going to do the exact same thing. I'm going to roll <laughs> for sure. No question. About it. Yeah. And we're going to find, we're going to find a private equity firm that we can protect the soul of nature because mm-hmm. we know, and that's exactly what we want to do when we acquire businesses, we want to protect the soul of what we're acquiring. Because if we go in there arrogantly and try and change everything overnight and just randomly hire, fire people, we know we'll break it. So we're looking, so kind of what we are contemplating is exactly what okay. we are pitching to the potential entrepreneurs that will join us on this journey. Love that. So I, I want to follow down that road a little bit on this decision to take private equity. But before we go there, up until now, and until if and until you actually do a private equity deal, you're doing acquisitions without private equity funding. And I'm sure competing against some companies that have private equity yes. funding. Yes. I've definitely seen that in your industry where we clients. I've seen it in financial services. I've seen it in a lot of industries. And the question often for my clients, for example, who want to get into an acquisition program, but they don't have PE funding, is how do I compete, right? Obviously, the people at PE funding can afford to pay higher multiples than somebody of those in general, depending on size of deal. They can certainly do more of a volume of deals at higher multiples than than you can do without funding. And I have a lot of advice I give clients on how they can compete, but I'd love to hear from you being somebody that has successfully closed deals in which I'm sure at least some of them might have had PE-backed competitive bids. How do you compete with the PE-backed firms being non-funded at this time? Yeah, so there are so many very active MSP platforms in the industry right now. And if they felt like it, they could come in and probably do like 90 to 100% cash down, depending on the nature of the deal and what they wanted to do and what their mandate, what their mandate is. And they have often have time to have different approaches. For me, it's like the value proposition we have with the equity that we're putting forward, the fact that it's pre a private equity investment. If anybody runs those numbers understands that there is a more significant economic return. So it is it's competitive. I think the private equity-backed MSP platforms are leveraging less the, the premium in the multiple 
but more how much cash they can put down. They're pretty frugal. I don't often hear of cases in the space we're in where there's significant premium like multiples. We're, we're in that ballpark. We really, really are in that ballpark. So I think it's more the cash down. And I think an uninformed entrepreneur slash MSP owner thinks that the more cash down I get up front, the better. And I'll be honest, I also used to think that. And I used to think that private equity was the axis of all evil. (laughs) Until I got to, I read seven books. One was Arit Gadish's book, Lessons for CEOs from Private Equity, which was that kind of a penny drop there. That was one of those, actually more of an essay. It's like 120 pages. And then the others were good, interesting. But the one that really landed it for me was Adam Kofi's book, Private Equity Playbook. And once I understood that, I was like, okay, I understand now how this works and how we can act as a private equity firm. And when the time is right and we bring on a private equity partner, we are ready for that because we went through a structured process of reading ourselves for that and understanding it. Yeah. Yeah. That's such an important point. I mean, there's so much you mentioned that I want to break down in that. Let's go first to this conversation of talking about the multiples and really it's more difference in deal structure than in multiples. And that's great. And frankly, that's actually what I've seen in, you know, in other industries, I've seen a lot less deal discipline with heavily funded companies. All right. And there was this stretch in some financial services uh, spaces where the multiples had gone crazy. They've calmed down a little bit since, since the last year, because it's often hard for these firms that have to deploy capital. Their investors don't want capital sitting around. And sometimes what happens with these PE firms is that they do get into bidding wars and multiples to, to, to deploy capital, but it's smart of them to keep the deal discipline that they have. So that's the first point. The second point, which is you raise is an interesting one. And it's a point that actually there are some advisors out there. I'm talking about lawyers, accountants, other consultants, whatever, who actually advise this. They always say, oh, the bird in the hand, the money up front, like anything back in yeah. you can't depend upon, whether it's earn out money or whether it's who knows whether he'll ever raise, do a capital event. And there is this whole school of thought out there. Just get as much money as you can up front. And I think it's short-sighted. I mean, I will tell you, if you're talking about small acquisitions, main street businesses, whatever, you're buying from an operator and that operator might or might not make it. They're not an experienced entrepreneur and there's a risk of them going out of business and then you won't get your back end money. I think there's a legitimate real debate and conversation. Yeah. But when you're talking about anything from mid-market up, any kind of, I don't want to say real deal, those are real deals for, for the smaller people, but not even the largest deals, just even small to middle market deals as opposed to main street deals. It's a whole different analysis. And certainly the conversation of the back end equity, especially for a company at your stage and position and the value of that. I mean, I've seen that happen to clients, people I know, multiple, multiple times where the second sale is worth so much more than the than the first sale. So I think it's I think it's short sighted. I think there's some bad advice out there that's applied upscale from maybe what would be more legitimate on the main streets. So yeah. I agree. I, I agree with you. No, 100%. I think people should really look at that and not take any kind of sort of standard advice, like as much money up front you can get is always better or anything like that. It's just not true. It's just not true. And it's interesting. We've seen where we engage and there is a fit and there's a connect. And we go through a process of sharing and kind of explaining. Entrepreneurs are, I wouldn't say all of them are grasping it. Some of them are still like, yeah, but I don't know about that. But like, I'd say 50 to 60% of kids, they they get it. Wow. I definitely yeah. want that. We've had yeah, some even right. say, can I get more? Can I roll over even more than your equity? Yeah. 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 And then the final piece is this conversation of PE firms being bad. It's interesting the evolution you had, because it's it's a pretty it's a pretty common evolution, right? Yeah, you know, we hear all these horror stories about 
make people afraid. And listen, there, 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 there are definitely examples where there are horror stories. I will say that, frankly, even the ones that you hear with, of horror stories, yeah, sometimes the PE firm turns out to be a bad fit or bad guys or whatever. But sometimes when you hear the sob story about the CEO being forced out and whatever, and they make it the big bad PE firm, it's really because it targets their promises. They haven't performed. I don't see it. They, you I don't know, see whatever. It. So sometimes it's not I that. Well, you know, the bottom line is it does change the game when you take PE money, right? I mean, there are certain growth expectations. I've had this discussion with friends and clients all the time. Yeah. You're in a different game now, right? And you need to yeah. be ready. You know, you talked about getting prepared. You need to be ready to play that game and play it well and win it because, yes, there are certain expectations of growth yeah. and return that PE firms have. And if you're not ready to meet those, then it's more of a chance the deal is going to go bad. Yeah, for sure. And I think there are a couple of pieces where my opinion of PE has changed so radically. On the first side, I've such an emotional connection to this MSP industry. I've, I've basically, this is what I've done my whole adult life. And there are so many other entrepreneurs like us that have dedicated their adult lives to this. And because the PE industry now have decided they want to consolidate this market, all of these entrepreneurs, there's an economic force which is driving the valuations and driving the fact that they can potentially exit with a very fair to good valuation and it can be transformative in their lives. So from that perspective, it's a very, very good thing. And then we've run the business, Corey, in a way that's kind of, these are our, we do strategic planning, we, the budgets follow strategic planning that then goes into balance scorecards where we performance measure. And I've been measured and everybody in our leadership team has been measured against budgets for probably over 20 years now. And when we're behind, it comes into Exco, we talk about it, we come up with a plan to turn it around. And that's how any good business should run. That's right. And that is, the, so what is also maybe not understood about the private equity industry is that the way they perform, it's measured and it's common knowledge what their MOIC is, which is a multiple on invested capital, what the IRR is, et cetera, et cetera, because that is what defines the pedigree of, an, of a private equity firm. So if they're firing a CEO, okay, they've got to protect their ability to perform. They're not doing that because they're evil, but if that CEO is delivering and they, the last thing they want to do is replace someone unnecessarily. They've got to deliver because their livelihoods depend on it. Their ability to raise capital depends on it. Their ability to attract other businesses they can invest in, where they're going to convince them to do equity rollover. If they're not good at performing, why must they do the equity rollover? Because the equity is not going to grow. Once you understand it, I think, and immerse yourselves in it, yes, they are hardcore. Yes, they are decisive. And once things, you know, if the numbers are behind, they're going to want answers and they're going to want to shine a torch. But trust me, if you're performing, they're going to love you. Oh, no question. No question. So, all right, let's, so let's take it one more step down the journey. So now you're at the point where you've switched your view, right? Learned and come around on, on the whole concept of private equity uh, and studied it. And then the next big decision, and obviously we're not asking for any specifics on who you're talking to, or you're considering whatever, but just in terms of criteria and factors are how does one determine and how are you going about determining which is the best, the good companies are going to have multiple opportunities to work with different private equity firms. And frankly, yeah. if you are at a point where you're so desperate and there's only one player, it's easy to say, oh, I, I only have one player that's willing to take the money. Well, you really got to, you really st still should be doing an evaluation of whether they're the right partner, right? But certainly good firms are going to have multiple opportunities. So what are some of the criteria that you guys are starting to develop or look at in terms of the type PE firm that would be a good match for you? Well, we definitely want PE firms that are high performing because a key part of our thesis is that we want to roll a significant chunk of equity. So we want to know 
that they're going to look after that equity. Okay. My goal as the CEO is to continue as the CEO. But the reality I'll have to face is that if I don't perform, that won't be great. But they're going to be making that decision because my equity rollover. So like it's, right. I'm a shareholder and I'm an executive, you know, and you need to be able to separate those two things. So we want a PR firm that's got a reputation of performing and delivering. Number two, we want a PE partner that understands the value of the soul of what they're investing in and realizes and gives the leadership of that business they're investing in the economy to protect that. It's an ecosystem. If you break that soul, you battle to keep the key people. As you lose key people, so the, the attrition of the people starts to increase. And then that has an impact on customer retention. And then that's very hard to fix when broken. So we definitely want a high-performing private equity firm. We want a, a one that will look to protect the soul and culture of that organization and balance that. And yeah, we definitely would love a private equity firm that can add value. And I think in our case, Corey, we've built an M&A competence, but I think when you look at what a private equity firm has experienced, we can probably learn, not probably, we would definitely, if we chose the right partner, I think we'd learn a lot from that. And then probably a fourth piece would to be able to leverage their ability to raise capital. So obviously capital slash debt, that is a piece which we would definitely want in the right partner. And also to understand their thesis. What is their thesis in the space? Is it aligned? Have they got a perspective that we don't have, which we can learn from? We've got a, a thesis and a thinking around the space that we're in, why we're focused, how we're focused. We've got some additional pieces of our M&A strategy. Does that resonate? What is their thesis? That, that's also an important one. Love it. Love it. So listen, you've been very successful so far in the deals that you've done. I'm sure you'll be successful in choosing the right PE partner and continuing to grow. However, I don't know a highly successful entrepreneur or a highly successful dealmaker who has not made some mistakes along the way. So uh, hit us with your biggest mistake or thing that went wrong in a deal that you did. No, so I would definitely say the first acquisition we did in 2016, we made every mistake you could except go out of business. <laughs> we went in arrogantly. We thought we knew better. I remember speaking to the CEO of that business about the way they did client care and just saying, no, that's not enough. And I wasn't berating him, but I was just like, that's a joke compared to what you should be doing. I can literally list five or six things where we just thought we had the answer, we had the solution. And uh, oh, man, we, we lost every single staff. I mean, we've got one left out of, I think it was about 25 people. We have one left. We kept most of the customers. I ended up doing account management at certain times. I ended up going directly into sales. And I think to sum it up, Corey, it would just be like, we thought we had all the answers. And what we've done now, going into these other acquisitions, I go in every single time knowing if I go in with an open mind and a growth mindset, I'm going to learn from these leaders because they know their geography, they know their business, they know their customers. And we've reverse implemented stuff into the rest of our business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just not being arrogant, not being dictatorial, and how do we protect the magic of this business that is now joining us on this next chapter of the journey? Right. I asked you my final couple of questions. I'm just curious, this may not be specific to deals, although if there are a difference in deals, you could talk about it, but even just generally entrepreneurial. I'm just curious, because you started out in South Africa doing this similar business yeah. and you came to the States, 
I'm curious as some of the differences that you found in doing business and or deals, whatever you see, in between uh, doing stuff in South Africa and doing stuff here in the United States. Yeah, good question. It's definitely a significantly smaller market. The one thing that is interesting is that if I were to generalize, the MSP entrepreneurs we speak to in the U.S. versus the MSP entrepreneurs we speak to in South Africa, the MSP entrepreneurs in the U.S. are seem to be more aware of what is a realistic valuation, what does a potential deal look like, whereas because there's less deal flow in South Africa, there is this kind of sometimes illusions of grandeur that a million dollar EBITDA business is worth $30 million. Like, so that's the one thing that, that I've definitely seen, but also a lot of similarities, obsessed with their customers, they deeply care in general about their people, a lot of similar technology platforms, a lot of similar challenges. Because what's happened in the MSP industry, interestingly, Corey, and why there is a lot of activity from a deal perspective is it's become unbelievably competitive. Yeah. So what 10 years ago for an MSP to get a new customer was not a very difficult thing. Now you're competing against so many other MSPs. So it's, it's a red ocean. Yeah. And that's one of the things. And that's similarly. And we've seen, we know, I know MSPs in Australia, I know MSPs in the UK. It's competitive. And that's what's part of what's driving the market consolidation as well. Yeah, no question. No question. Anything else that you want to touch on before we go to the final two questions in terms of what you see in the marketplace or around deal lessons or anything we haven't covered that comes to mind that you'd like to share? For sure. Like something that I definitely learned, and if I think as an entrepreneur in the beginning, how we looked at lawyers was also like a little bit of the access of evil, like, <laughs> oh, we're going to do this overcharge us. And I remember in the early times, we just signed up a law firm and then the, the lead partner uh, meant to reply to the lawyer that was considering taking us on. And he replied saying, because I'd said, look, there's a clause in the agreement here which says you can build back, you can build three hours, even though it took you 30 minutes because you thought it was three hours worth of work. That's not what it said, but if you read it properly, it gave them the liberty to do that. So I emailed Ricky and I said to her, listen, like, what about this clause? <laughs> so the partner mailed her back, but included me and said, these guys are going to be more work than they were. That's where my perception of lawyers started, a very negative place. Like if you're going to go into M&A, whether you're buying businesses or whether you're selling your business, get a great lawyer, okay? Make sure you get the right legal advice. And I'll just add a little bit of elaboration on that and I'll be succinct. I'm not talking about someone that's going to over-lawyer it because you can get that and you're going to waste money, okay? But get someone that's had actual experience at this. It's actually done. So someone that handles your contracts and the odd labor issue or employment issue is not the same person that's going to do a deal for you. So find someone that's had the actual experience, get someone good, but be careful of finding someone that's going to over-lawyer because you can literally spend four to five times what you should. Yeah. Listen, I'm a lawyer that does this stuff and I agree 100% with everything. Yeah. You just said, so if people want to find out more about your business generally, or maybe they're candidate looking to be acquired, whatever it is, how do they find out more about it? Oh, so they can go to our website, netshirt.com and have a look, see kind of, you can get one feel for us there. You can go into LinkedIn. You can reach out to me there. You can also get a feel for netshirt there. Yeah. And if you wanted to say you were an MSP entrepreneur and you wanted to speak to some of the other MSP entrepreneurs that have joined us on our journey, I'd connect you with them. Because that's the way, and I don't need to be in that call. That's the way to get an honest view of how it's been. And then, yeah, you can email me directly, 
or you can find me directly, whatever you prefer. I can give my email address. I don't know if you want to post it when you post this, Corey, or I can give it to you now, whatever you prefer. Yeah, yeah, you can give it, but it'll also be in the show notes. But yeah, so, so you, you can email me. It's Oren, O-R-R-I-N, at netshirt, N-E-T-S-U-R-I-T dot com. Or you can find me or text me on my mobile, which is 917-517-7763. And again, folks, if you're driving or whatever, that, that, all that stuff will be in the show notes. That way you can connect with Oren. Oren, my final question on the podcast is always about my highest value in life, my highest ideal, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom around the world, from people, everybody from oppression to why I've been an entrepreneur for decades and haven't had a boss and, and don't plan on having one. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Oh, what a great question. Yeah, I think being a dad and realizing as my daughter was born, she's three now, I realized I've got no clue what I'm doing. <laughs> and I then read the Montessori book and she spoke about how all these young kids want, even at the early age of one or two years old, is they want some level of autonomy. They want to put on their socks and choose the, the dress that they want to wear. Or even if it's freezing outside and what they want to wear is different, they just want to feel like they made that decision. And I think for me, that idea of freedom for me is that I have the ability to make the decisions I want to in my life, that we've got a culture that people feel free to make the right decisions based on what they think is right for the business and what is right for our customers. And then I even look at my check-in that I do for my EO forum every month. It's a rating around sort of social impact and that. And I think about our dreams program and how people put their goals and dreams in there and our culture and the way we've programmatized that supports people in achieving their goals and dreams. And I think it's going to sound sort of corny, but there's almost... I feel like there's a spiritual freedom in that for me that we've created an environment that encourages people to focus on what they really want in their life. And I love that. And it's part of what I love going to work. And it's part of what I love about our culture. Great. Oren, thank you so much for being a great guest on the DealQuest podcast. Yeah, thank you, Corey. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.